most of you know, I'm not that big of a sports fan. But one thing that I observe from a distance is that it would be very difficult to be a referee or a coach of a losing team. <laughs> Poor guy who coaches the Jaguars. You know, his, his, his job is on the line, I think, right now. Um, because what we have in our society is we have a bunch of professionals who watch games on their couches and have access to social media. And, man, they're professionals. They know every play that should have been done the right way, and they're happy to tell others about it. Uh, and whether it's from sports or to politics or the comment section of news articles, you know, our society has become accustomed to assuming that we are all wise and all-knowing, and that leads to impatience and criticism and harsh uh, critiques of how other people act. And sadly, this same attitude can bleed into our relationship with God. We, ha- we can become critics of God and sit in our lives and from our vantage point and look at God and say, God, you should have called that play differently. You should have done it this way. You should have run it this way. You should have worked these things out like this, not the way that you've done it. This is not good. And we can elevate ourselves to the place where we criticize God. And that's pride. That's pride to take that position. And yet it's within us. That's what our nature, our our old sin nature, leads us to to develop these kinds of mindsets where we, we become bitter at God. Anytime we're bitter at God, anytime we complain, anytime we're angry, We're telling God, you're wrong. You should have done it differently. And we come here in the book of Habakkuk, and we find a man of God who is struggling with these kinds of thoughts. He he looks at his life. He looks at the, the society around him. He looks at the plays that God has dealt him in his life, And he says, Lord, this doesn't look right. This doesn't look fair. This is not just. You have not done what you should have done. And that's how the book starts. Thank God the book ends with a completely different attitude and a mindset. Even though his circumstances don't change, by the end of the book, Habakkuk goes from being the frustrated, uh, complaining servant of God to being one who has hope and joy and confidence in God and his goodness. And that's where we want to end up, right? If we're not there, that's where we want to be. And the book of Habakkuk is going to help us get there, though we're not going to make it through the book. I, I had these dreams of preaching through the whole book in one message, <laughs> but it, it, it didn't happen. And we'll see what happens this morning. But So we have in this book Uh, an example of someone who is frustrated in his Christian walk, a child of God. And it's three short chapters, just to give us an overview. The first two chapters are basically Habakkuk's complaints and charges against God. You're not doing things right. And then God graciously responds to him and and teaches him what is correct. That's chapters one and two. And in chapter three, you find a, a poem or a prayer of response where Habakkuk's heart has been changed, and he now shares his new viewpoint of God and his goodness and his grace. 
It's a response of faith. And though this, the pages of this book were written 2,600 plus years ago, their message is so important to us today because we struggle with the same things that Habakkuk struggled with back in those days. And so just briefly, let's look at the scenario of, of when and why God is, or Habakkuk is writing this under inspiration of Scripture. This book was written in 607 to 606 B.C., you know, B.C., before Christ, <laughs> 607 years before Jesus was born, Habakkuk was alive. You know what was going on in those days? It's kind of a dim part of history. Uh, you can read about in the Old Testament, Jeremiah was a contemporary of Habakkuk. You read Jeremiah, he's called the weeping prophet because of all the trouble and the anxiety and the pressures and stresses. I just read his 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 book, and man, he, he goes through a difficult time. Habakkuk lives at the same time. He's living in Judah, which is the remnant of God's chosen people. You remember God chose Abraham. He promised descendants. He preserved those descendants through Egypt. He multiplied them. He gave them the promised land. He blessed them with an incredible king, David. And God's plans for Israel were magnificent. And yet what happened? they rebelled in their hearts against God. And even though God promised to bless them with so much, they turned away from God. And it's just a downhill slide from David. It's, it's a kind of a rough hill climb to get to David. And then David even falters in sin. And then it's a downhill slide of kings descending and attempts to, to get back right with God, but it's just it slides into disaster and rebellion And at this time in history, 1,400 years after God's promise to Abraham, the ten nations or ten tribes of the north, Israel, have already been wiped out. God's already brought Assyria in 722 B.C. to punish and judge the wicked northern tribes of Israel. He's, He's destroyed them. He's wiped them out. He's carried many of them captive away. And now all that's left is Judah and Benjamin, the southern kingdom. And God has sent prophet after prophet warning them, you need to repent. You need to turn from your sin. If you'll just repent of your sin, God will forgive you. He will bless you. He will restore his promises to you. But he's not going to let you continue in your sin. He will not let you do that. And yet at this point, Judah is living in rebellion. They're, they're enjoying, they're sinners that think that they can rebel against God and prosper. Does that sound familiar? People who, who say, ah, I can live without God. I can make it on my own. I can go my own way. And I'll be just fine. I think that's where our nation is today. I think that's where most of the world is today. And even a lot of Christians live in this condition where they, they still can claim some of the, the, the title, uh, the name of God. They can still have the temple of God. They can still have all these things, and yet they're living their own life, pursuing their own ambitions. Living in the flesh is what they're doing. And at this point, it seems like they're succeeding. You know, they still have the land. 
They still have the blessing of God. Their land is still profitable. They have some wealth that God has enabled. Some of it is still there from David. It's, some, of the, some, of the, some of it has disappeared over the years. But some, they're still living in a prosperous, wealthy nation, living in rebellion against God and thinking that they can get away with that. That is exactly where much of our society lives. Well, Judah is bold in their sin, and yet at this dark time when there's very few people living for God, you find this prophet, along with Jeremiah, probably just a handful of people. They probably felt much like Elijah did in his day. We're the only ones left, you know, trying to live for God. And yet it it was probably a fairly accurate statement at this point in history. Habakkuk, we, we, who is this guy? He's got an interesting name. You know, Pastor Dan, your next son can be Habakkuk. <laughs> he got a Malachi, now he can have Habakkuk. You know, the, who, who is Habakkuk? His name is not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture except for in this short three-chapter book. And only two times, the title, look at verse number one of the book. It says, the oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament prophets, typically there will be at least a little bit of information about who they were. I think Amos was a herdsman. You know, some, it'll even say for some, the son of, you know, somebody will mention his father's name or maybe to what region he grew up or where he's ministering. It doesn't say any of that for Habakkuk. It just says Habakkuk. And the only thing we know about him is he's a prophet of God. And that's a good thing. He's an obscure servant of God. You know, he, there's, there's not much about his name. No, we don't know. He, he's no big shot guy. He's not Jeremiah. You know, Jeremiah's ministry goes over a number of years. Habakkuk, this, this incident seems to have taken place in one interaction with God. All three chapters are one, one interaction with God, one little snippet in the life, and that's all we see and know about Habakkuk. And yet he's a prophet of God. What's a prophet? Yes, he's basically a messenger of God. A prophet is a messenger. He's, his job, they didn't have the completed word of God that you hold in your hands. They had some, but it was in scrolls. And, and for God to communicate his will to his people in their time, he would speak directly through the prophet, whose job was then to take God's, most of the time, unpopular message and go tell it to rebellious people. And you read the book of Jeremiah, that's not a pleasant thing. Jeremiah is whipped. He's thrown into a muddy well to die. He's, he's laughed at. He's, he's thrown in prison. He's rejected. He's scoffed. And every, every kind of thing that can happen, simply because he's a prophet of God telling God's word to people who didn't want to hear it. And Habakkuk, if that's how they treated Jeremiah... I'm sure that's how they treated Habakkuk as well. You can even see it in verse number two. He says, how long, O Lord, will I call for help? You know, it's, it's dangerous down here. 
and you will not hear. I cry out to you, violence, and yet you do not save. This is Habakkuk saying, Lord, it's dangerous being your prophet. I'm the, the, the recipient of violence and abuse simply because I'm trying to serve you. And I call out to you and you don't even hear me. You don't answer my prayers. You haven't helped me. You haven't saved me. Can you see a little bit what's going on? And here's Habakkuk, one of the few people in his day still trying to live for God. He's a prophet. He's a servant of God. He has faith. He's trying to obey God, trying to honor God when everybody else has long ago forsaken God. And yet still he looks at his life and he says, Lord, I don't hear you answering my prayers. I don't see you taking action to save me here. Something's wrong. You ever feel like that? You look at your life and you say, Lord, my heart is to do right. I want to honor you. I want to do the right thing. And yet I look around my life and I've got this major problem going on and that problem going on and this issue and I've prayed and prayed and prayed about these things and you haven't taken them away from me. Are you there? And that's exactly how Habakkuk feels at the beginning of this book. You know, what's it like to live for God and serve him? We get this idea that if we say, I want to obey God and serve him, and we do that, then somehow God is obligated to give us a comfortable, easy life. Does your heart tell you that? (laughs) Mine does. Well, look at all the sacrifice I've made. I shouldn't be the one struggling with this issue. It should be better than this. Somehow we think we're owed some kind of ease and comfort in life simply because we've Chosen to live for God. Is that what God promises? And so we have here in the first two chapters of this book uh, a frustrated prophet, you could say. See, the trials of life pull us toward bitterness. And you see the first words of verse 2, the first time Habakkuk opens his mouth to speak to God, what's he saying? How long? You ever feel like that? Lord, this has been going on for a long time. Don't you think time is up for this trial? Isn't it time for this to be done? How long am I going to have to wait here for you? I've been soldiering on in the midst of great sacrifice and pain. I've been patient all this time. I've been trying to live for you, and yet I am getting tired here. I just need to know when I can expect some kind of reprieve. Just give me some light at the end of the tunnel, and I'll be fine. And yet I don't see that, Habakkuk says. His, his expectations of God and what he expected God to do seem to be frustrated. Look at verse 2. He says, How long, O Lord, will I call for help? What does that mean? When I pray to you and I cry out to you, what does the child of God expect when we pray? We expect God to hear us. 
And if he hears us and he loves us, isn't he going to do something for us? Isn't he going to solve this problem? Now, is, what does Psalm 23 say? He had Psalm 23. What does Psalm 23 verse 1 say? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Lord, if you're my shepherd, he says, Oh, Lord, that's the covenant name for God, Yahweh. You're the one who's entered this relationship with me, and I'm trying to live for you. And you've told me that you would take care of me, that I wouldn't lack. And it sure feels like I'm lacking here. Sound a little irreverent, doesn't it? But we never would think or feel like that, would we? It's amazing how God knows exactly what our hearts are. That's why he gives us this book. He gives us this window into Habakkuk's life so that he can tell us, hey, I know what you go through too. I know what your heart feelings are. I know what your struggles are. Habakkuk assumes that his cries for help to God will result in rescue from injustice. I mean, God hates injustice. God hates violence. God hates wickedness. God hates sin. He hates rebellion. And he loves his children. And if you put that formula together, wouldn't you expect that God would answer my prayers and solve this problem for me? Look at the description as Habakkuk kind of relates to God what he sees all around him in verse number three. He says, why do you make me see iniquity? What's an, that's sin. Lord, everywhere I look around me is sin. People have rejected you. They're going their own way. And why do you cause me to look on wickedness? I see wickedness, iniquity. Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contentions arise. Does that sound like a pleasant life? Everything around me seems to be falling apart, Lord. No one's living for you. They're living for themselves, and it's hurting me. It's hurting my life and their treatment of me. Now, often a quick look around a believer's life doesn't always look that pretty either. If you were to relate to God some of the circumstances going around in your life, you know, it would probably be characterized by weakness, you know, trials, oppression, health issues, burdens. Now, this is the common experience of a Christian's life. And the frustration is for Habakkuk that there's no visible rescue. The end of verse 2 says, I cry for help and you do not save. I cry out violence and yet you do not save. <laughs> and God's the Savior. He's our hope for salvation. And in times of trouble, we're tempted to question God and his justice. God, if you were just, you would solve this. You would act like this. And in verse 3, you see the first word of verse 3? What is it? Why? You ever, you ever have that question? Maybe you've been <laughs> struggling with this issue, and then all of a sudden a whole new massive issue arises in your life. You get the phone call, you get the message, you, know, you get the letter, whatever it is. And you say, why, Lord? Why? Why would you let this happen? Why? And, and look at the accusation. He's actually accusing God. He's saying, you're the one making me see iniquity. You're the one 
putting this in front of me. You're the one causing me to look on wickedness. I don't like iniquity. I don't like wickedness. And it's like you've taken my head and forced me to look right at this and experience this in my life. And the charge of verse 4 is that, Lord, you're not just. See verse 4? Therefore the law is ignored. The law is God's righteous standard. What God says is right and good. It's ignored. It's not being enforced. Justice is never upheld. There's no justice in my society. For the wicked surround the righteous. Look at that picture. Here you've got a, a handful of righteous people, and they're surrounded by these hungry people. I don't know if you saw the clip a week or two ago of that lion that got surrounded by the 20 hyenas. Did you see that? It was going around in the news. This young male lion ventured off on his own into a new territory, and these hyenas surrounded him. And those are some of the ugliest creatures out there. And they just, they just come in, and they, they nip at his back, and, they nip, and he has to sit down and protect his legs. And they're, they're just nipping at him and yelping at him and, and starting to overwhelm him. He's this massive lion, but you can't fight off 20 hyenas. And he's getting worn down. He's running out of energy. And all of a sudden, off the side of his view, one of his friends comes over. And two of them are able to beat back the hyenas. And that lion starts rubbing on his other friend and licking him and thanking him and all this kind of stuff. And all that to say, sometimes in life it feels like the wicked are surrounding the righteous. And it seems like they're the ones who are prospering. It seems like they're the ones who are gaining power. And the result, verse 4, justice comes out perverted. You, you look to the courts, there's no justice there. You look to the leaders of the land, there's no justice there. And it seems like, where am I to look to find justice, Habakkuk says. God, you love justice. And it's nowhere around. The consequence of all this, the fact that God isn't answering, God isn't saving, is that Habakkuk is suffering. His life is difficult because God isn't acting right now. And that's where the accusations and the blame come to God. God, you shouldn't be doing it like this. This is not right. Is God just? Will God take care of his children? Is Psalm 23, 1 true? Then... What is Habakkuk's situation? What is your situation? Oops. You know, how, do you, how do you make sense of this? Is God, it's, it's almost like Habakkuk says, God, you are either sleeping or you're on vacation or you've forgotten about me because it's, I don't see any action going on here. And I've been calling for a long time. You know, does this echo anything that we feel today? Even 2,600 years after it's written, the Christians are still feeling the same feelings in life. You know, I look at my society. I look at our society. It doesn't look like it's improving. It looks like the wicked are triumphing. It looks like righteousness is being trampled. It looks like the wicked are prospering. 
And the dangers for people who are going to stand up and speak what is truth are looming in the near future in our society. And so what am I to do? What are you to do? Can we, as children of God, expect God to be just and to be good? Now, it's interesting. Here we have the first words recorded are Habakkuk's complaint. And he's, he's really expecting God to answer, isn't he? He's saying, Lord, you got to tell me. you got to answer. you got to speak to me here. Now, does God have to answer? No. God's not obligated to do anything. He's not, he wasn't even obligated to give us his word. He's not obligated to speak. And yet he has graciously chosen to do that. He's graciously chosen to speak the truth we need into our lives so that we can be encouraged and we can be blessed. And that's exactly what happens in this book. Thank God it doesn't just end at verse 4 with Habakkuk saying, Lord, speak, and God's silent. No, God graciously speaks. You see verse 5, and it doesn't tell us, but this is actually God speaking. If you go to chapter 2, verse 2, it specifically mentions, it says, Then the Lord answered me and said. Now, in our typical reading through a book like this, we might be tempted to just jump right over that. And the Lord answered and said, and the Lord responded with this. And we just assume that that's what God's supposed to do. But no, God is gracious anytime he speaks his, his word into our life. It's God's grace that you hold in your hands the word of God this morning. And that in those 66 books, God has spoken everything you need to hear. There's not one thing we need to hear that God hasn't already spoken to us. And in Habakkuk's day, that wasn't the case. And so God spoke to him through this vision. It's a blessing God spoke. We're not left to wonder about his character and his ways. We're not left to wonder, is God just? And look at the response that God gives to Habakkuk, starting in verse 5 of chapter 1. It says, Look among the nations, God says. Observe, be astonished, wonder. I am doing something in your days, and you would not believe it if you were told. <laughs> Here's a back, Lord, you're, you're nowhere to be found. And God says, I am there. I'm here. I'm working. I'm active. God is at work in my life. He's at work in your life, though you might not see it. It's almost like God operates behind the scenes a lot of times. And he's, he's kind of like the CIA. You know, he's incognito, but he's definitely there. He's definitely active. And unlike the CIA, he's always just, you know, and he's always capable. But look what God says. He says, look. If we will stop and look around, we will see God at work. God is at work. 
The problem we have is we're often looking at the things that we don't like, at the discomforts that we have, rather than looking at what God is actually doing. He says, observe, and then he says, wonder. That's a beautiful word. That means, he says it two times in a row, and first he says, be astonished and wonder. The same verb, two different forms, to emphasize, be amazed, be astounded, be shocked, be dumbfounded. You thought nothing was happening, but man, is something happening. It is happening. I am doing this, and where is it? Well, it says, look among the nations. Now here, Habakkuk had his eyes focused only on Judah, God's chosen people. And that's in his life, in his little bubble, in his little circle, that's where Habakkuk's looking. And it doesn't look good from there. But God says, hey, my action's actually bigger than your bubble. It's way out in the nations. What are the nations? You know, all those people that seem like God has forgotten about them, that seem like they live their lives and go their own way and do their own thing, and God has no promises to the nations like he has to the nation of Israel. And yet it's almost like that shot on the screen where the the main character is in the middle, but the action is actually taking place way down in the bottom right-hand corner, halfway off the screen, is what God's saying. That's where I'm starting to work. I'm working in the nations. The last place you expect God to be at work is where he's working. And he says, boy, am I doing something. I'm raising up the Chaldeans. (laughs) God's justice sometimes comes in unexpected forms. And this causes another problem for Habakkuk. Because Here he is complaining about the injustice and the sin of Judah, God's chosen people. God says, well, I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans. These are the Babylonians. These are the people way over, you know, several hundred miles away near the Euphrates River uh, in Iraq, Iran area. I'm going to cause them to rise up in power, and they're going to come over to puny little Judah, and they're going to conquer them. They're going to overthrow them. Look at, look at this description. It's almost like God gets excited about how violent and how brutal and how powerful the Chaldeans are. He says in verse 6, For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places that are not theirs. They, this is how the history works, right? And especially in ancient history. A nation would start growing in power. And what do they do? They immediately start looking at their neighbors, you know, and they say, we're going to get you. And they go and they conquer their neighbors and steal all their stuff and, and make them pay taxes to them. Then they get more power and they start growing more and they expand farther and they conquer more people. We're not too familiar with this in modern history. But this is how man naturally works, okay? And they're rising in power, and they're so successful. And right at this point in history, the Chaldeans, who, the, the Assyrians had been the chief power. They're the ones who carried away the northern tribes of captivity. Now they're in decline. The Babylonians are on the rise. They're going to conquer the Assyrians and spread from there. 
and come down to Judah. They're going to conquer Judah. They're going to even go to Egypt. And they're going to conquer Egypt. In the whole known world, they're going to conquer it. And they're going to be so successful at this. Now, how would you feel to have these people coming towards you? I mean, just look at this description. They are dreaded, verse 7, and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. That means they do whatever they want to do. They don't answer to anybody. They don't listen to your, your complaints and your cries. They are going to trample over you. They come fast. Their horses are swifter than leopards, keener than wolves in the evening. Wolves are hungry and chasing their prey in the evening. These guys are coming. Like an eagle that swoops down to devour, they're all looking for violence. They're like this big, massive horde. You know, the picture of grasshoppers just swarming everything, coming over the top of the hill. Fast. That's what these guys are. And they, take, they just sweep in. They take captives like sand. It's, they're so successful. They laugh at kings. Some king tries to stand in their way. They're just going to knock that guy out. You know, that you, you have your biggest, strongest fortress up on top of the hill. That's okay. They're so powerful to just take a bunch of rocks and rubble, build a little ramp up over your wall, and knock you out. Now, there's no fort, fortress holding you back. And their God is their strength. They're so strong. They're so proud. How does, that, how does God's response help Habakkuk? What's his complaint? There's sin and injustice in Judah. What's God's response? Oh, I'll take care of that with the Chaldeans. But Habakkuk, now it's his turn. Verse 12. Oh, God, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? Lord, you're from everlasting. You're holy. You're pure. You're clean. You're righteous. And I know that you're faithful to us, and we're not going to die. You, you're going to bring the Chaldeans to judge us and correct us. But I still have a problem with this, Habakkuk says. Verse 13, your eyes are too pure to approve evil. Lord, how can you, in your plan, how can your plan be to use the Chaldeans? I mean, these guys are worse than the people that they're going to punish. They're more wicked. They're more godless. They're more violent. God, this is not a good plan. This is not right. You know, it's like saying, if you want to see God's justice today, look at the rising power of communist China or the radical liberal agenda in America and people who hate God and they're rising on the power and God's saying, that's, that's where I'm active. I'm going to use them. And I, I am going to correct and judge those who have rebelled against me. And I'm going to use these other even more wicked people to do it. <laughs> See, God has limitless tools at his disposal to accomplish his good plan. This, is this not what the cross is? The cross is wicked men crucifying the Son of God. And yet that is exactly God's plan. The wickedness of man works in God's plan only to accomplish his purposes. Now, he doesn't cause the Chaldeans to be wicked. That's from their own hearts. But he can use their wickedness to accomplish his will.
And Habakkuk says, something doesn't seem right about this tool of your justice, God. And this is, this is not good. You should have done this another way. It doesn't seem to fit with your holy character. Are you going to let them get away with this? Are they, why are you silent? Verse, verse 13, when the wicked swallow up those who are more righteous than they. <laughs> they're going to swallow up. The Judeans are more righteous than the Chaldeans. And you're going to let the Chaldeans swallow them up? And then they take their nets. He uses a picture of a fish. And the Chaldeans, they just fish, and they're pulling fish out of the water, using their nets, surrounding the whole area, just pulling everybody out, conquering everybody. And then they, they bow down and they worship their net. They worship their mighty war machine and their, their power and their talent. They're not giving praise to you, God. They're not honoring you. They burn incense to their fishing nets, verse 16. Here's the question, verse 17. Will they, therefore, empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing? Are you going to let them get away with this? God, are you going to, is it just for you to let the Chaldeans do this? See, and then verse 1 of chapter 2, you see Habakkuk say, This is not right, Lord, and I am going to get myself up on the top. Oh, here's that. I'm going, to, I'm going to get myself up on the top of the highest tower I can see, and I'm going to look around. I'm going to wait for you to answer me because you've got some accounting to do, God. You need to, re- you need to answer me. And when you reply, I'm going to have a better answer because you're wrong, I'm right, and I'm going to prove you this is true. You know anybody else in Scripture who was like this? Job? And Job got to the point where he said, if I could just have my day in court with God, I could prove to God it's not right and fair that he allowed these trials to come in my life. And I would win. God would have no chance if we had a day in court. And pride argues about God and his plan. You know, this is exactly where we can get in our Self-centered thinking. We want to evaluate God's actions and demand that he follow our plans. Lord, in my situation, this is what you should have done. This is what you should not have done. And this was okay, but it could have been done better. You know, and we critique and we get bitter at God. And we complain and we're frustrated and we're angry. And we throw pity parties and, and pout about God and what he's doing in our lives. And what is all that saying? I'm right, you're wrong, and you need to change. You need to change now. And that's where Habakkuk is. And then maybe this morning, I don't know where you're at, maybe you're harboring some accusations of injustice or unfairness against God. Lord, you shouldn't have allowed me to have this sickness. You shouldn't have allowed... You shouldn't have allowed this bill to come. You shouldn't have, you know, you should have, you should have given me that. You should have given me a better wife, a better husband, you know, whatever it is. Now, there's all kinds of things that we can get worked up at. And that's pride. But we'll stop this morning with verse, verses 2 through 4 as God graciously and patiently responds to proud Habakkuk standing there in his self-righteousness And in verse 2 of chapter 2, it says, Then the Lord answered me and said, 
Here he is. He's waiting for God to answer. God answers him. And God says, okay, back, you're a prophet. Write down what I'm going to tell you and write it big so that anybody running by can see this. Okay? Because you need to see what I'm about to tell you. And he says, for the vision, verse 3, is yet for the appointed time. It's, there's, there's a time I have set, and what I say is going to take place. It will happen. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. It's like that move, heavy moving force. Nothing is going to stand in its way. Though it may go slow, though God's will may go slow, it's not going to be stopped. It will happen Though it tarries, wait for it. Be patient. I am acting. I am just. I am good. I am right. Wait for it. For it will certainly come. It will not delay. I will show up. I will be just. Everything. And I wish we could get to chapter 2, verse 14, where it says, it's such a beautiful picture in this context. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What's that saying? God's saying there will not be one place or one person in this world whose life will not be overwhelmed with my glory. I will be there magnified in their lives. Even in the rebellious sinner, my glory will cover them. There will be justice there. They will not get away with this. And the whole earth, like the waters cover the sea completely, the whole earth, there will, there will be no unjust act, no sin that will ever, that will, that will go unpunished because I will be glorified in everything. You know, that's complete. But how do we respond to this? Well, it says in verse 4, here's, here's the main application. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. We have two choices. We have two attitudes, two responses that we can have when we look at our life and say, this doesn't seem right. First of all, we can be like Habakkuk and we can be proud. And that's going to lead to complaining. It's going to lead to anger, bitterness, frustration, you know, all those responses. Or the second part of verse 4 says, but the righteous will live by his faith. That's the key verse of Habakkuk. It says the righteous will live by his faith. Trust God's plan and time, but in the meantime, when you look around and you don't see what God's doing, what are you supposed to do? Live by your faith. What is faith? Faith is counting God to be real and right in your circumstance even when you can't see it. Faith is not sight. Faith is Habakkuk looking around at, in his life. He's, he's being abused. He's being attacked. He's being thrown in prison. He's being overrun by the wicked. And yet, what is he supposed to do? Trust God. And every day, wake up and say, Lord, I'm going to do what you want me to do today. I'm going to rejoice in you. I'm going to worship you. I'm going to praise you. I'm going to thank you 
for what you are doing in my life, even though it doesn't feel very good right now. The righteous will live by his faith. And what's your situation this morning? Our Lord patiently calls us from pride to faith. I know that there are many people in our church going through some really difficult times right now. God is calling us to faith. Just yesterday, um, I know I've mentioned several times in the past about my former assistant pastor's wife who was fighting with cancer. She died on Tuesday. And just yesterday, they had the funeral, and it was such an honor to watch the funeral. I mean, it was, it was just a beautiful thing. Both Chad and Sarah radiated the love for the Lord and others. Their marriage and family was beautiful. They, they chose to serve God with their lives. I mean, it, they, they, were, they were like the model Christians. And in that situation, you would expect that God would bless them with a nice, comfortable, easy life. Right? I mean, they're just trying to serve God. And yet, three years when I was a teenager, in, in, they came to our church in 1996. I was 14. And uh, for three years, they served the Lord. They really invested in people. And then on, on June 11th, 1999, at 1.30 in the morning, another lady in our church and her husband, they lived across the cul-de-sac from the Priggies, she went psycho. Okay, She went crazy. And she woke up in the middle of the night, she grabbed a knife, she stabbed her husband to death in bed. She went to the garage, got gasoline, doused herself in gasoline, lit herself on fire. She had four kids. She went into her oldest daughter's room, eight-year-old daughter, and stabbed her 60 times and lit her on fire, basically. And Jessica, the eight-year-old daughter, she escaped, and she ran across the cul-de-sac at 1.30 in the morning, screaming to the Priggy's house. And they woke up, and here's this girl on fire, bleeding all over the place, screaming at 1.30 in the morning. And they went, and they you know, doused the fire, they, they called the police, they, you know, the, the personnel came. Two of the other children died from smoke inhalation. The mother and father died. Um, but there was Jessica and a four-month-old four son named Joshua who, who survived that tragedy. And they think part of it was postpartum depression, whatever. I don't know what she gave into her flesh. And, but the, the issue was the, the the Silks, who died, had named the Priggies as the custody of their children in their will if they were to die. Because the Priggies had this model family. I mean, an amazing family. They're best parents in the world. And so Joshua Silk was in their home, you know, at the beginning. And then the DCF, Department of Children and Families from the state, came and took Joshua from them and said, you are unfit to be the parents of, these ch- of this child. You are, you're a dangerous family. You're part of a cult. You, know, you, you believe in corporal punishment, and this is evil, this is bad. And they took Joshua from them. Well, the Priggies, you know, their name was maligned through the newspapers, even all the way down here in Florida. There was an article about them all over the, all over the country. And 
they fought it. They went to court. They spent thousands of dollars, tried to fight that the will be obeyed of the parents. And yet, three years later, they were still fighting, and they lost. They lost the custody. They, they were defeated in Supreme Court. And um, they, all they had left was a big bill, lawyer bill, from this. That was, you know, kind of the start of their service to the Lord. And through the whole thing, total joy, total peace, no bitterness, no animosity. You wouldn't have known that something like this was happening. I mean, you, re- you can even read the articles today. <laughs> their names are still out there of how evil and how bad they are and things. And... Then right after that, the court case ends three years later. They have another child. They had two already. They have their third child. He's born with Down syndrome. And God gave them a Down syndrome baby. And another, you know, they, they welcomed him. They loved Seth. They cared for him. They rejoiced in that. And life went on. They kept serving the Lord. Well, then, you know, what was it, five or six years ago, she went to the doctor and complained about some struggles in her, you know, stomach or whatever. And the doctor just, you know, kind of brushed her off and gave her some medicine and sent her home. Well, two years ago, she goes back and is diagnosed with cancer. And by this time, it had started years ago. The doctor missed it. He didn't do the proper tests. He should have been more thorough. He missed it. And now the cancer has spread in her in her body, and you know, but her first response when she heard that she had cancer was, "Chosen, God has chosen me to be the one to reflect His glory and grace." And he, she thanked God for her cancer. You know, and and yesterday at the funeral, it was just a blessing to hear the the testimonies of other people who knew her and and. The, the hospice people for the last 30 days of her life, the lady said, the hospice director said, she's seen hundreds of people die, and many of them, their faith is shaken, they're fearful, you know, they get angry, all these kinds of things, not once with Sarah Priggy. You know, she, she wanted to die well, and she honored the Lord in her death and rejoiced and you know so many so much testimony, but she died with a smile on her face. And I, just for serving the Lord is how do you respond to that? And the most the most heart wrenching thing of it all was was in, in a funeral to watch at the end of the funeral as they wheeled a casket out to see Pastor Priggy and his six children get up and follow their, his wife and, and mother, their mother, out, out the church for the last time. You know, what a... Is God just? Is he good? Yes, he is. And through her life, you know, so many people were impacted. And I think through her death, even more will be impacted. But 
what a, what a joy to see her testimony of faith. She was grateful to God for that opportunity. She, one person said that when she talked to her about her cancer, that she had, she, she had this kind of normal life at that point. You know, she had some children in school. She had some kids in college. You know, life just seemed to be normal. But then God gave her cancer and allowed her life to go from just a normal life with, with a normal impact to a life that would have a much greater impact. And that's the kind of faith that she had. And thank God, you know, for the resurrection and the fact that she entered into the presence of God and she's in a much better place. And, and she, she won. She, she won the reward. But the question is, what about us? You know, what, what about the Priggy family who's left? How do you respond to this? How do you respond to God in your trials? What's your attitude? Are you going to get bitter? Are you going to get angry? Are you going to get frustrated? Are you going to get discouraged and stop? Or are you going to trust God to personally craft your story one moment at a time? And trust he is working. He is active. He is good. And I hate to say it, but we're not going to be able to get back to this to finish the rest of the story for a couple weeks here. But the end of the story is a blessing because God says, I'm going to give you strength. And though everything around you comes crashing down, I will make you rise up. And I will help you to bound over the obstacles because I am your strength. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your grace to us and even your sovereign plan in allowing us to go through difficult times in life so that we can see more of your goodness and your grace and we can reflect your glory. Lord, we want to be those whose lives magnify Christ. As Paul said, whether that be by life or by death, we want to magnify you. And so, Lord, we thank you for your goodness, and we thank you for the promises that you give to Habakkuk and you give to us of your grace. Thank you that there is not one event or set of circumstances in this life that can ever foil your plan, that can ever steal our joy and our hope that we have in you. Lord, help us to trust you. It's in Christ's name we pray.